I want to welcome you to the Pro Mindset Podcast. The Pro Mindset Podcast is all about diving into the headspace that results in championship performance. High-performing athletes, winners, have this mental flow and have a positive headspace for their performances and success. Join me, Craig Doman, sports attorney and NFL agent, on this podcast. I will interview pro athletes, college athletes, football coaches, and sports personalities. Together, we can discover how you can get in the flow and have your own pro mindset. Hey, I want to welcome you, Steve, to Pro Mindset Podcast. Uh, Being a guest today, it's Super Bowl week, big week in the NFL, the final game of the season. Um, uh, Who are you picking to win the game this week? You know, I'm gonna. The way the Patriots are playing down the stretch here in the playoffs, it's hard to bet against them. I, I'm uh, gonna go with the Patriots just because I think they're hot right now and, and probably the better team. Okay, what makes the Patriots? Uh, what makes the Patriots special? I mean, you know, this is Tom Brady's ninth Super Bowl. Bill Belichick's just a vice grip on the AFC East. You know, they've won it like ten years in a row, right. like fourteen out of fifteen years or something like that. I mean, I know you haven't worked for that organization, but from the outside looking in, what do you think is going on in that building? Well, I think one, from a coaching standpoint, and, I, and I've had a chance to, to compete against them, coaching with the Buffalo Bills on a couple different occasions and seeing them up close and personal, so to speak. So I think one thing they do better than anybody else is just adapt to the situation. You, you, they don't do their scheme and live with it. They're, they're going to adapt their scheme to their players, to their opponents, and you never know quite what you're going to get from those guys on both sides of the ball when you go into a football game. So I, I, I would say the way they coach and their adaptability is a big key to their success. Being a coach and a player, you're probably not a fan, but as a just as a coach fan, what's your favorite Super Bowl of all time? You know, the one that sticks in my mind the most is the first one because I was a big Kansas City Chief fan growing up and just the hype around that game, the AFL, NFL, when they were separate and that game being played out in Los Angeles. I was living in California at the time. So I remember that one the most. Then, then obviously, when the AFL could win one with Joe Namath, I believe that was the third one, that that kind of took it to a new level. And then, again, like I mentioned, I was a Chief fan. I think they came back in the fourth one and beat Minnesota. So those early ones kind of stick in my mind that a sporting event uh, could get that big a hype just in the newspapers and on television really kind of resonated with me. My favorite one was the 28-3 comeback because I'd never seen a comeback like that right. with the stakes, right. you know, with those high stakes involved for Brady and Belichick to come back against right. the Falcons was amazing. What factors do you believe are the most important for championship teams? Not just the Patriots, but, you know, the Rams, the Chiefs, Golden State Warriors. What are the attributes and the traits of those programs that are different from everybody else? I think number one, they're they're well rounded, so to speak. They're they're not a quote passing offense or just living with good defense. The the teams that kind of can can make that run through the playoffs play good in every aspect. They're good on special teams. They're good on defense. They can run the ball. They can throw the ball. You know, and they play good situational football. So I think once you get one dimensional and you get to that level of the playoffs, somebody's going to find a way to shut you down. And, and so I think those, you look at those teams, you know, they talked about the Rams throwing the ball all over the place early, but they can run the football and they've been playing good defense as of late. So I think that's why they made the push. Let's talk about quarterbacks. You know, everybody talks about Tom Brady being the, potentially the best of all time. What do you feel like separates Tom Brady from everyone else? Well, success. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue. I, I'm a big Philip Rivers fan. And, you know, I had a chance to work with Kurt Warner and, you know, I've been around Drew Bledsoe and, just studied quarterbacks my entire life, so I've, you know, I've got appreciation for a lot of guys. But it's hard to argue with what Tom Brady's done and the success he's had, and you know, big games at the highest level, playing the way he's played. I think when you look at quarterbacks, obviously there's a certain type of skill set that has to exist to to be a good NFL quarterback or borderline elite NFL quarterback. And I think it's you know I think sometimes we make too big a a deal with a Tom Brady or a LeBron James being able to carry it, I think for the most part, those elite quarterbacks still are in good situations with good players around them and good coaching 
that helps them get to that level too. But the one thing I think you see in all those guys is just a an unparalleled passion or love of the game, and not just the game to compete in the game and to really almost destroy you. You know, they they take that that passion of game and competing to a level it and it's just not matched. And that's what really I think stands out with those elite quarterbacks. I agree with you. I think that, you know, Tom Brady seems to have a spirit of a 25 year old. Right. And the guys that dominate, like Brett Favre, it was a game. Right. You know, he, he acted like he was playing in the neighborhood every Sunday and wanted to kick your ass. Right. That's I mean, just yeah. did, wanted to dominate you. No question. And, and the other thing, you, when, you, when you're around those guys, and I've, I've, like I said, I've been fortunate enough to be in, in the organization on the practice field with some guys like that. And they don't take a play off. They don't take a rep off. Everything matters. That, if that ball hits the ground on a Wednesday practice, they're pissed. You know, they, they just, that, that competitive drive is, is so far above what you think the normal athlete has. And I think that translates into just big-time success at that position. Let's talk about Philip Rivers. What what is what is his DNA? What makes him thirty seven years old still striving for success and got to the you know divisional round this year? Obviously, got beat by the Patriots pretty handily. But what drives him and what makes him a, a special player? I will say this: he's a special person. Number one, you don't come any better than him as a, as a guy off the field and, and the things he does as a family person. Uh, his religious beliefs, his work in the community. It's its its a thing of beauty just to be around the guy. Obviously very, very talented, was able to do it over a, a quite a period of time like Brady. I mean, his success, you know, its you're not talking a year or two, you're talking decades of being able to play at a high, high level. And one thing I will say about Philip, he, he is who he is, and I think this is important, and, and I would bet most of the Hall of Fame type quarterbacks would, would fall into this category. You know, they may not be best friends with everybody on that team or everybody on that staff or in that organization, but they can relate to everybody. And that's one thing I was watching Philip. He had a way, it didn't matter if, if it was a defensive lineman from, from LSU or an offensive tackle from Northwestern. I mean, he had a way of, like I said, not maybe being the best friends with the guy, but he could relate to everybody and everybody could relate to him. And, and that belief in that guy as your leader then then kind of permeates throughout the building and, and it's neat to watch that it really is so to kind of summarize a couple of things you said coach is the best ones are relatable which makes Without them a great a leader right they have passion right and they are competitive son of a bitches no doubt and and you know you, you, i'll give you an example with kurt warner you know first guy in the building last guy out you've heard that with a lot of these guys but i'll tell you what they they were in your office asking about a blitz, how are we handling this with this protection? It's 7 a.m. on Tuesday morning, they had already gone through all the game tape. You know, those guys just, their their preparation matches that passion. And it makes you a better coach. It makes you have to keep up with them. And, and a lot of those guys are like that. Let's talk about Kurt Warner. Went from stocking shelves at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Got an opportunity with the Rams before you got there. Right. And then, unfortunately, Trent Green had an injury that gave Kurt an opportunity to take take the position. What share with us? You know, kind of you did with Philip. What do you know about Kurt Warner and, and why he was successful with the Rams? Well, and again, I'll, I'll go to the off the field stuff. The guy's an A one human being. I mean, just a super person off the field, and, and that's very impressive in and of itself. You know, I, I got there, and, and Mike Martz was kind of designing and coaching and calling the plays with that greatest show on turf and, and was really cutting edge, did a great job. He's, he's a fantastic football coach. And and one thing Mike did was he blitzed you every day. I mean, he took the offense and stressed it. It didn't matter what time of year. It could be OTAs. It could be two days. It could be during the season. You know, we were pressuring ourselves quite a bit. And that's the thing that, that stood out at that point in my career with Kurt was his ability. It, it seemed like the faster the defense got, the more it slowed down for him. And then so then you started to realize how how his ability to process things to and not just process, process with chaos around him. That that's you hear that word process a lot with quarterback coaches, but it's easy to process when things are clean. But when you can process with six and seven man pressure and guys getting walked back into you and, and still 
it, it just seemed like with him that ball kit. I knew the play. I knew the defense. I'm looking at a script, and that ball still came out faster than I could resonate it in my mind. So that that to him, you know, a super accurate player, you know, was smart, could get the ball out fast, and, and utilize some, some pretty good players on that football team. Yeah, he had some talented receivers. Yeah. When you break down a quarterback, a lot of coaches look at the quick release. They look at the mechanics. Part of the quick release that I think a lot of people don't talk about is the quick mind. Right. So if you have a quick mind and you have quick mechanics and you have quick feet, so quick physical and quick mental is a great combination for a quarterback. And you need both. I mean, you can see it, but if if you're long and big with your feet and long with your arm, it's going to slow you down and and inevitably catch up to you at the the college and the NFL level. And then you can be the quickest thrower of all time, but if you just can't quite work it through – mentally and, and that's that's a lot of reps and playing experience can can improve that but those two go together but I'll tell you one thing you know at the, at the end of the day what I felt about quarterbacks is is you, you, number one you got to be accurate and number two you got to be tough and those are non-negotiables you don't have those you got no chance the rest of it you work with and you try to improve in the quickness of the delivery and, and you like size I mean obviously that's a good thing in athletic ability and arm strength and all those things, you know, are really good factors. And if you have them, they're pluses. But if, if at the end of the day, you can't hit what you're throwing at, or if you're not a mentally and physically tough dude, it's going to come back and get you. So if you want to be an elite QB one, most coaches don't coach with pressure. Most coaches don't coach with chaos, right? Because it, it, they're trying to get 11 guys. And this is at the high school level and the college level for sure. You want to look clean. You know, you want to show all the other, you know, if you're the offensive coordinator, you want to show the other coaches that, hey, my game plan is going to work. Right, right. Okay? You want to build up the confidence of your of your offense because if, if your right guard keeps getting beat in practice because he can't handle your All-American or All-Pro D-tackle, it kind of, it's going to screw his headspace up for Saturday or Sunday. Right. So, yeah, there is a fine line. I mean, there, there's a fine line between developing confidence players, your 11 on offense, you know, they can't, if they can't do it on a practice field, they're not going to do it on a game field. So, but on the same token, the, when you really look at football, it's the guys that can play when they're being pressured, they can play on third down, they can play in the red zone, they can play in two minute offense. They, they play in those critical situations. And if you don't practice those, then all you are is a first and second down offense that can, you know, maybe run a power play and throw a hitch out there with some success. So, and that gets back to the, the comment I made about the Patriots and, and Belichick in, in that if you do have a right guard that struggles, then you've got to, you can't leave him on an island. You've got to bring the tackle down and keep the tight end in. And so you've got to be able as a coach to not just say, this is my scheme and it's going to work. This is what you, what you should be saying is this is the matchup that I have in my advantage. I'm going to try to make that a focus of the game. And then this is a definite mismatch and I'm going to have to do this to help my disadvantage in this point, this area. So, Well, being in the NFL, one of the biggest roles of a coach in the NFL, especially on the offensive side of the ball, if you don't have a franchise quarterback, it's to find one. Right. And we've got the senior bowls and all-star games, the combine, pro days, private visits, lots of interviews. How do you know when a quarterback really hasn't played in a pro-style offense in college, whether he can handle that critical situation? Because from my perspective, the thing that really defines a quarterback in the NFL is the guy that can make the play on third and long. Right. Is the guy that can make the play in, on fourth down in overtime. Yeah. In the red zone. Consistently with, when the other teams bring in the house. Right. Okay? So at the end of the day, a guy could look good coming off the bus. He could look good in indie period, team period, you know, seven on seven. I mean, he could look – he could sound good on, on – in the position meetings, but how do you know until you put him in that situation yourself? Right. Well, I don't think there's any guarantee, but I think, number one, you look for, to give you an example of last year's quarterback class, I thought was really a good quarterback class. I studied it and I wrote it up for some people, and and, and not everybody played in a pro-style offense, but when you looked at a Josh Allen at Wyoming or a Mason Rudolph at Oklahoma State, you, you tried to take the components within their offense that match the skill sets that you need to play in the NFL. Are they are they able to throw without a hitch? Are they able to throw with people in their lap? Are they able to make subtle pocket moves? Are they able to make radical pocket moves? Those sort of things. 
and to get back to, to kind of highlight what you said, you know, when I had the the ability being in an NFL building, I would make the cutups. I would just watch a guy on third down or just watch a guy in the red zone or just watch him when he's behind in a two minute situation and see, you know, how, how their level of play, did it elevate or did it go down in those situations? Yeah. It, it, it's funny grading quarterbacks, whether you're, you're recruiting kids out of high school to college or whether you're putting together a draft board in the NFL rooms, it's, it's a lot different at quarterback than it is at left tackle. You get a bunch of personnel people together, and they're going to agree pretty quick on the order of left tackles in the draft. But you're going to have people all over the place at quarterback because they look at them in different ways. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing to watch and to, to listen to other people evaluate it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's exactly what you said. They've got to play in the critical situations to be good in the NFL. And they got to be able to play from a pocket. Uh, and that's... That's the scary thing right now is the the game in college is getting away from that as much as it can, and the game in the NFL still me still is can I process and throw with people around me? So the the development maybe is kind of lacking a little bit right now. So if you're a a quarterback coach or an offensive coordinator in the NFL today, and you bring in a rookie quarterback like the one of the uh, first rounders last year, what do you know is going to be their biggest challenge? And how are you going to help them overcome that challenge? So let's just take let's just take Big Greenfield. Okay, did a nice job. He was number one pick. He goes to the Browns. He has two head coaches. He has a couple offensive coordinators. He has an offensive coordinator by committee at right. one point in time during the season. What was his biggest hurdle, and how did how would you help him overcome it? And what did you see from the outside that he did to do so? Well, I, th- I think number one, he's a good player. You know, he, his his arm talent and his ability to anticipate throws as I watched him with the Browns was even more so than in Oklahoma. And and so he did a very nice job, as did most of those guys that came out last year. And and there's still a lot left to be done to say who, you know, who's gonna have the best career. You know, there's you're gonna have to sit and watch these guys for three or four years to see how they develop. But the number one thing is just getting them up to speed on the offense. You know, that how quickly is he ready to verbalize plays in the huddle and, and be able to process things as he's going to the line of scrimmage to know his keys. You know, am I looking for a protection overload? Am I looking for safety rotation on this pass play? Those type of things. And so just as many reps really as you can get. And I think inevitably some guys are just ready to play faster than other guys. And he was one that adapted to his situation pretty pretty well. I thought they all did, to be honest with you. It was a great group of uh, rookies. You made me think of the AFC Championship game when you described all the things quarterback has to do. Patrick Mahomes may be the guy moving forward. Time will tell. Right. Okay. And he's one of these guys where he looked like he had a limited playbook, didn't make a lot of adjustments and checks at the line of scrimmage. And you saw as the game unfolded with Kansas City and, and the New England game that Brady's getting his guys in the right position every single time. They're doing so much at the line with him, and you saw Tony Romo point out that that quarterback sneak check to an outside or a wide zone situation that scored for him. So that that's the thing that those guys and they'll all tell you. Even you know the Bradys and Philip Rivers, they're better their 16th year than they were their 15th year. It's just they they just love the game and they keep learning and they keep getting more and more comfortable with the offense. And and Mahomes will do that too, I'm sure. But give Kansas City credit, they played to what he did, and they let him ad-lib when he ad-libbed, and, and they designed game plans around his strengths, and, and that's what you got to do. And then hopefully he his career path continues to evolve as, as those guys we talked about that have done it 10, 12, 15 years. Hopefully he can stay healthy and have that type of career. How does a guy that's been playing, you know, he's in his mid-30s, continue to love the game? How does a guy, you know, who's doesn't listen to the same music the rookies do, Right. Um, might have kids in school. Isn't going out to the clubs like right. the rookies. Right. How, how does he connect and relate with the rookies and, and stay young? You know, Brady, Rivers, all these guys, Drew yeah. Brees. Yeah. What do you see when Well, you- I see, number one, their, their preparation <clears throat> and the way they take care of themselves and the way they train you around to make sure that they are the type of player that still can play in their mid-30s. That, that's admirable in and of itself. And then, like I said, I think their ability to relate, they're, they're not – they're not going to be on the same personal level with somebody coming out of college. I mean, they're just, they're at a different stage in life and you're not talking about 
and it's severe in college when you bring a kid out of high school at 17 and then he's playing with some 21, 22-year-olds. That's a significant difference. But when you start looking at a 22-year-old and a 37-year-old, they're just at different stages of their life personally and socially. But like I said, it, it, they can't be reclusive. I mean, they've got to they've got to be able to relate to everybody and, and have a have a relationship on whatever level it is. And, and just looking at those guys like Phil Rivers, they're they're themselves, and, and it comes out it comes off the right way. Well, one of the things that I know from how you coach is you teach a lot of your quarterbacks how to throw off platform. Right. Give the audience an understanding of why you do it, how often it happens, how that separates quarterback one from quarterback two. Yeah. You know, I, I think what, what I look back on, you know, I coached for 34 years and most of it was, was quarterbacks and a lot of different levels. And, and I, I look back at most of the practice time was devoted to the rhythmic throws. You know, you put in a route and, and you drop back and on time you're throwing the ball. It's kind of that clean situation that comes up in a game that you hope comes up in the game as a player and a coach. And then having to s- studied it later in my career, I, I thought that at least at the college and the NFL level, that, that was about a third of the game. And all our practice time was going to a third of the game, whereas the other two-thirds, they were either shifting a target line or, or like you said, off-platform, or maybe just changing a, a launch point to some degree, subtly or radically. And I thought that's a majority of the game. And, and kind of made, brought up something in my mind, you know, as I wrote those quarterbacks up last year, and I really liked Rosen and I really liked Don, Donald. I thought they were good players. I thought they had a chance to come in, start, and be – you know, very good career NFL quarterback starters. And everybody would say that Rosen was the most ready in terms of the physical talent because he, if you put him in a room, he was the most gifted thrower. There's no question. You'd, you'd walk all six of those guys into a room and, and have them throw. Josh Rosen's going to be the guy that wows you. But the thing that stood out to me about Sam Darnold was he was the one that didn't necessarily scramble but could get off platform and kind of make some ugly throws and be very effective in that regard. And in hindsight now, that was probably more of the talent that you needed to transfer into the NFL than being the pretty thrower. And, and I thought he did a nice job with the Jets. He showed, again, he could get in there and do that sort of thing. And, but, yeah, again, I, what I've done is, is I, I, I looked at quarterback play, and, and whenever I saw an oddball throw, I wrote it down, and I just made up a drill. And I probably have a thousand of, of things that have come up in college or the NFL where you've had to throw a ball, maybe not on rhythm and not perfectly. And, and if you don't practice it, you're not going to do it. So when I train guys, that's what bulk of what we do. Are you enjoying the podcast interviews we do here at Pro Mindset? Then head on over to Bob Rourke's Business Leaders Podcast at businessleaderspodcast.com to hear more interviews like ours as Bob meets with business leaders from across Colorado to uncover their secrets to success. You'll learn about success in a variety of industries. His podcast will inspire, motivate, and introduce you to the tools and disciplines of elite business leaders. Guests enjoy being on the show because it's informal, wide-ranging, friendly, and candid. Listen, learn, and succeed. All right, let's shift to quarterback play to being an offensive coordinator. Every week, you put together a game plan that culminates in a call sheet. Walk us through how you did that, and over the years, what you learned that worked, what you learned, what mistakes you made that you know young coaches that might be listening and go, man, I, that's what I'm doing. That's stupid. How do you get to a point where you can be very efficient, effective, and make sure that ultimately on the weekend, your quarterback especially, but your whole offense knows exactly what you're going to call, why you're going to call it, and what your expectations are for that play call. That's just a very, very intricate process, particularly at the NFL level. And it has a lot to do with your development through OTAs and camp of how you establish your, your, quote, base offense or your concepts, and then how much of that you're going to carry week to week and maybe disguise it with personnel and formations and shifts and those sort of things. And then how much are you going to go for your bag of tricks, your third down packages, your red zone packages, and and what you're going to pull out for those specific situations. The one thing I will say that it's an amazing thing how you think you're you're on top of it coaching, but you, you just learn something every day. It's it's the situations. And I, I know I, I thought I was always preparing well in the red zone, but there came a time early in my career in college where I had a all of a sudden I had a fourth 
and 12 and didn't have a play. You know, it was the end of the game. We're going in to score. It's you got to throw the ball into the end zone. And I just, I, I, I had not communicated that with the quarterback or rep that to that degree early in my career and realized, hey, now, now here's a whole set of situations where the game's on the line, a field goal doesn't, doesn't do it for you, and the ball's got to go into the end zone. Can you do that from the 7, the 12, and the 19, and the 22? And, and So you learn those situations. Another one, I was actually, I'm embarrassed by it, I was in the NFL, and we were playing the Ravens, I was with the Bills, and we were in a two-minute offense to go down and win it. And I had my two-minute calls, and, and we had practiced it. But then we got down tight without timeouts. And it seemed like every time we'd practiced that before, we'd called a timeout or killed it and then got to huddle up and call a play inside the 10. But when we were having to do it on the move, there wasn't as good of calls as, as there should have been. And that was, a, you know, learned that late in my career. Didn't have as good a menu uh, for not huddling no time, you know, time running out. We got to, we got to score and we're inside the 10. Didn't have what I thought was adequate at that point. So you, you, you just continue to look at all those situations and, and, and continue to rep it, you know, throughout the, the off season and into the season. But you, it's those, those game plans are, they're large and they, they cover just about everything. I think there's two, there's multiple hats offensive coordinators wear, but there's a dividing line between all the things, preparation, and then when the game starts, right. the art of calling plays. What's the best way for a coach or you know even a quarterback to give input to his coach when he says, "Hey, what are you thinking?" To be successful in actually calling the plays. Yeah, it's it's some guys can, some guys can't. I, I think just being around it, it's everybody thinks they can, but until you've done it, you know, there's not a lot of time, and there's there's no going back once that 25 second or 40 second clock starts. You know, there's no going back. You got to you're you're on that time frame to get a play into the quarterback. However, you're doing it. Uh, you know, obviously it's a helmet communicator in the NFL, but in college maybe it's signaling it. But uh, it takes practice. And and I, you know, one of the things I'd heard and we, we did late in my career, I'd, I'd heard Bill Belichick did this. They call it a four minute scrimmage, and they would start with four minutes to go, and and you know you'd get the ball. Team, team A would get the ball and maybe they're up, maybe they're down. You know, it doesn't matter. If they're, if they're down, it's more of a two-minute situation to go down and win. If they're up, it's more of a four-minute situation. But then they would play it real real time with officials at that point. And, you know, the four-minute offense maybe didn't work and they had a punt. Well, now the other side, the other play caller now is in a two-minute mode because, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or maybe they're ahead and they're in a four-minute mode. And, and what it did, having gone through that as a play caller, what it does is it, it's the closest thing to a game. You script everything in practice. You know it's third and six, so you just list all your third and six calls. But when you got in this situation, all of a sudden it's you're back on the clock and you don't know what the next situation is, and it forces you to call it like a game. And that's what I'd heard uh, Coach Belichick did that to, to kind of stress his coordinators prior to the start of the season to have to go through that one time. And, and even if you're an experienced play caller, it's it's still a difficult it's a game-like situation. So, you know, I, it, it, you know, some guys do it. I, I had a, I had a great upbringing with offensive football. I had a chance to to play and coach with Mike Martz, who I think is one of the most brilliant offensive minds to ever be involved in the game. I, I was able to to work with Kevin Gilbride, who had done a lot of great things with Warren Moon, and, and was able to work for him. I was able to work for North Turner, who I still think is one of the brightest best offensive coordinator play callers there is and, and had a chance to watch those guys operate, not just implementing a game plan, but how they coach technique, how they installed it to a team and then watched them in a game. And, and having been around that, I thought, I thought that helped me as a play caller when I was in that role. Well, those are some big names, successful coaches, longtime NFL coaches. Like, why don't you pick one of those guys, Mike or North? And just kind of talk about what did they, what did you learn from them specifically, and how, what was their offensive philosophy, and how did they handle their quarterback situation? You know, I'll start with Mike Martz, and the thing that that I that I got from him is the detail. There was no detail too small. I mean, he when he when he installed a play, it was the split was to the inch. I mean, for the receivers, the drop for the quarterback, it was it was just. A beautiful thing to watch how he had every aspect, every detail from the center to all 11 players on offense. He was a very demanding coach, but his ability to be hard on guys but instill confidence, I thought, was what made him a great 
a great coach. And, and then they all, the, the, all of them knew where the matchup was. And, and you think about it now in today's NFL, you know, the pass rushers are so good. And even the inside pass rushers are so good now that as many throws as you can get to your quarterback to where he knows where he's going when the ball hits his hand, either by film study or, or just by play call, by design, whatever, whatever the situation may be. As many of those you can get, that's helping your quarterback and, and maybe knowing where the matchup is is part of that. And, and those guys all did a great job of saying, this guy on my team is better than that guy on that team. How do I get that matchup and, and how do I go to it? The, the design of that was, they all did that very well. Well, here, I'll start rambling a little bit real quick too. You know, the, the thing you've got to be able to do is find out how to create that matchup. And maybe it's, you're not going to get the one-on-one outside. Maybe you're going to get it in the slot or maybe you're going to get it only when you're in three by one. That they, they all had brilliant offensive minds to try to create that matchup. But, you know, the other day it was interesting in the New England-Kansas City game, they weren't going to let, New England wasn't going to let the speed receiver go on one-on-one. I mean, they were going to double him all, all the time and, or at least the most part, watching it from a television perspective. And, and that's what I think Norv in particular, but all those guys could do was when you took away the matchup, now what's plan B? You know, how the, I know what you're doing. Now I now I can go to this, and I feel real comfortable with this. And, and it's easy to say that, but to do that on an NFL sideline when you only have 60 plays, you know, and it's moving fast and, and that, that play clock's on you, that, that's, that's when those guys really earn their money. And, and all those guys that I mentioned were, were good at that. Well, Belichick has a history of taking away what the other team does well. And, and Tyreek Hill was definitely a primetime player for Kansas City this year. Kansas City really only got him the ball in that one long right. bend route, right. corner route. But what you're alluding to in, in some respects is that Belichick had a plan and it worked. Right. But Kansas City didn't make an adjustment except for one or two times that actually counteracted that to put perhaps the Patriots in a situation where now they got to come go to plan B. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying Kansas City didn't do that. I, I know Andy Reid and those guys are good coaches. I'm just saying if you double, double Tyreek Hill, Kelsey maybe has an advantage, or even if he doesn't, somebody else does. And getting to that is one thing, but then executing it. Maybe they did have a good plan, just didn't quite execute it. But I thought in that game the, the telling thing was the final drive with, with New England because at the end of the day, you are going to hang your hat on what you, you know your players, so to speak. And it, those third downs, every one went to either Gronk or Elvin. I mean, <laughs> you could have doubled those two guys and not covered somebody, you might have even been better off. But, you know, they were going to go to those two guys when it counted. And, and it's just, it's it's a cliche, but it's true. And you hear it every time you just watch a game on TV. It's, it is a game of matchups. And it's how do you emphasize the ones that are in your favor and how do you de-emphasize or help the ones that are make you at a disadvantage. And, and you know, going into the Super Bowl this, this week, I mean, you know, Aaron Donald, at a three technique, you know, you're going to need help. I don't care how good you are at guard, you're going to need help on him. So that's one that's obviously when the Rams are on defense, it's in their favor. Now, how, what is New England going to do? How much is that going to compromise what they want to do in the run game and the pass game? But how are they going to not let that guy beat them? We'll be, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see that, see how many times they, they can get two hats on him. No question. I think Devil and the fullback may be an option. Gronk is way out. Yep. You know, Gronk's doing a hell of a job of pass protecting at the right. moment. So they might put him as a sniffer H-back type guy, but no question. Coach, let's move into the some coaching stuff. All right, Coach, you were a head coach at Colorado State. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest difference from being a head coach compared to being an assistant? Well, you know, the thing the thing that was a little bit different in my career is, is I, I went back and forth. I was a college coach. I went into the NFL, then I came back to college, and I went back to the NFL and then back to college. So in some ways that it made it interesting, but it, there wasn't a, wasn't a cohesive flow to it at times, uh, as opposed to just being a career college or NFL guy. But to answer your question, that the, the biggest thing was I, I, you know, I'd always enjoyed coaching the quarterbacks and having my room of people that I coached and installing an offense and, and maybe calling plays if I was in the coordinator role. Once I became the head coach, the amount of football that I got to do every day was drastically reduced. And you're in charge of the entire program and, and you know, in charge of the strength and conditioning area, the nutrition area. How, how do you t- 
team travel? How are, how are you assembling your roster as a head coach in the NFL? It's one way, but in college it's recruiting and player issues that come up. And so all those things that, that, that are part of a program at both levels, but are not part of the football part necessarily that goes on on practice and on the field, come across your desk and have to be dealt with. And so, like I said, the amount of time you can spend on the football thing gets reduced uh, a lot. You're more of a CEO than a ball ball coach. Yeah, I didn't get to spend as much time watching film with quarterbacks in a room as I would have liked to have done. I might be out talking to somebody about giving money so we can build an indoor facility or we can get a new this or that that we need and fundraise or what have you. And, uh, you know, I just, I look back when I was a head coach, I had a, you know, during the season, I had a TV show on a Sunday. I had a press conference on a Monday. I had a radio show on a, on a Wednesday night. And I had a booster club of high end donor type people that I had to talk to on Thursday. I mean, those aren't things you just roll into. You got to get ready for them. They take time to do. And, and every time you have one of those, it's, it's compromising your time that you can put into a game plan and, and the coaching aspect of it. So you've got to rely on staff to do that. Well, if I recall correctly, you were a college quarterback at CSU. Mm -hmm. So you became the head coach at your alma mater. And you had a long, successful career in coaching, like you mentioned, as a pro coach and a college coach. Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently as a player? When you were, you know, I looked at your bio to kind of get up to speed. You were a full-time starter your senior year. Played a lot your sophomore and junior years. What do you wish you would have known then that you know now? You know, I, th- I think if, if every player and coach could have a chance to observe or be a fly on the wall of, a, of an NFL facility and watch the amount of preparation that those athletes do, maybe during the season as well as in the offseason when they're, when they're allowed to go into the building, then I think that the standard answer for me, both as a, as a young coach and as a young player, would be, you know, you'd work harder at your craft. You just, you, you know, you just didn't understand that there was that whole level out there of people that were preparing, you know, probably better than you were. So that, that would be one thing. The more, the more I was in it, uh, as a coach, I began to realize that, that there are some, some pretty serious dudes that, that are successful because of the way they, they take care of themselves and prepare. Who's the coach you either played for or coached with that had the biggest positive impact on your career? I'm not sure I can say one guy. I, you know, I, I was a, a, you know, I grew up, my, my, my dad passed away at a very young age. So athletics kind of saved me to some degree. So as, as a, as a young kid in, in both high school and junior college, I, I wasn't fortunate enough to go to division one right out of high school. I played my high school coach, my junior college coaches were really good to me. I mean, they, they were hard on me. They taught discipline. They taught work ethic. But at the same time, instilled confidence in, in a belief that I could be successful at this. And uh, so I'm very fortunate to have, to have played for, at a young age, some, some, some really good, good people, good coaches, good programs. And then, like I said earlier, you know, I, I was an offensive career offensive coach and have a chance to be around a, a Mike Martz or a North Turner or a Kevin Gilbright is, I mean, I, we should all be so lucky to be able to spend time with those guys and work with them and, and learn their, the way they went about doing things. So, you know, I've, I've been around some good people. Sonny Lubick at, at Colorado State, uh, I worked for him. And, and you talk about a person that could just deal with people in a special, genuine way and get the best out of people. He was remarkable. So kind of gave you a lot of people. But, uh, you know, that's what this business is, the ability to work with people and take what you learn and communicate it the way you need to communicate it to, to be effective in your situation. And I've been around some really good people. Well, you may have already answered this question, but why did you decide to be a coach? And did you decide, did you consider doing something else? Because it looks like as soon as you finished playing at CSU, you went back to your JUCO and was yeah. became a coach. You know, there was one year lag in there. And, and like I said, I think football and being involved in athletics coming from, you know, a single mom, you know, it was a big part of keeping me out of trouble or, or wherever headed in the right direction and doing good enough in school and, and those sort of things. I, I was certain at an early age that it was a possibility for me. But then when I graduated, I, I did take a year off. I went to graduate school and it was the only year since I, I'm 60 years old now. And I think I started playing organized football when I was eight. So there's one year in that span that I was not on a team that I was going to grad school and trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, and it, it, by 
by week two of the football season, I knew that I was getting back in football after that year. It just was, it created such a, a void in my, my life that I was going to somehow at some level get involved in coaching or, or whatever and do it. And so that's, that's when I went that, that path. It, I took a year off and then said, that's enough of this. That is fantastic. Sounds like, sounds like you were addicted to football at a young age and you, you built a career coaching right. football. Very fortunate to have been able to do something, and, and I can't picture myself sitting at a desk nine to five. I just can't. I could never picture that. And, and the cyclicalness of the job, be it college or the NFL, when you have a, the stress and the excitement of a season, and then the then the recruiting or the building of a roster in the Senior Bowl and the Combine and the NFL year, and then you know just the the off season programs and the way it changed every so often just kept you kept you kind of fresh and it's a great profession and it always has been. We've talked a lot about quarterbacks as a coach. Sometimes you were the running back coach for the Bills. You've been the head coach. So you're in charge of the whole roster. You've been in charge of recruiting, the recruiting strategy, profiles that you're looking for in the players, prototypes. You've been a part of the NFL for a long time where you went through the draft evaluation process. Right. Okay. How would you describe, regardless of position, the ideal mindset for a successful football player? You know, I heard, I overheard somebody, a famous coach, I can't think offhand who it was at the Combine a few years back, saying if, you know, they were, they were joking about the Combine measurables and the 40 time and how, you know, it's important, but it really isn't. It's not football. And, and somebody made the comment, I overheard, I wasn't in the conversation, that uh, if you could measure how much they love football, that would be the number one indicator on, on the drafting or putting a person on your roster and it's hard to tell you know it's hard to tell deep down inside you know and that's we get back to those people like Brady and Rivers you know that that you can't measure it it's off the charts how much they love the game it's that they get paid well and they get recognition and all that but at the end of the day they're, they're doing it for free you know that's how important that game is to them and how much they love it and so I, I think if you don't if you don't have that if you don't have a passion for playing and you know want to compete and want to be better then it's going to catch up with you really fast now obviously there's some skill set and size dimensions that that matter and, and help you measuring how how much they love the game of football is is key I agree I have asked over the years many times my clients how many guys do you think on the team actually love the game and we're talking about the NFL and the average has generally been about a dozen. Yeah. So out of 53 guys, about 12, they could name about 12 guys. Sometimes it was as low as six or seven. Right. You know, guys are doing it for the money, doing it for the fame, doing it because it's girls. They've always done. They, yeah, 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 they don't know what else to do. Yeah, exactly. And I'll tell you what, I'll be honest with you. My, my, my la- I don't think I've ever told anybody this. My, my last year of coaching, I didn't love it. That's why I got out of it. I've been doing it for 34 years, and I could tell there was something missing at that point and just decided, hey, there's, you know, I'm at this age in life and I'm in a good situation and a good place and maybe I can carve something else out there and, and go a different direction and still be involved in sports or football, but do it in a different way. And, but if you don't, you're, you're, you're selling yourself short, you're selling your team short, you, you, you know, you got you to gotta be there playing and love the competitiveness of it. And the second you don't, uh, somebody's going to come take your job anyway. Let's go back to quarterback mindset. Quarterback maybe doesn't see a backside safety on a cover in the number three on the other side and gets a pick. Right. Okay, maybe a vertical route. How do you handle that situation with that quarterback when you need? He's 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 QB one. He's the best guy you got. You really don't want to put number two or number three in. Right. You, you could grab somebody out of the stands that might do a better job. And this guy is down in the dumps. How do you build guys up and how do you train them psychologically? So that when they have adversity, they have failure because football is a game of success and failure. That they treat it like a bump in the road instead of a, a yeah. wall. Well, you know, it's funny when I, when I co- when I started coaching quarterbacks, I, I thought of that a lot about you know they're this is tough. I mean, they're going to make some mistakes and make some mistakes at key times. At certain levels, they're going to read about themselves in a negative way or hear something about themselves. And, you know, you got to be thick skinned. You got to be a tough dude. And so, what I always did as a coach, and then I got this validated because I did it in college. And then I had a chance to get him back to Mike Martz, watch him do it at the NFL level. And he did it the same way. And, and that was, you, you just made it way harder to practice than a game would ever be. 
Uh, you were just in their face hard every rep of every day of their life, whether it's spring ball or OTAs. You just you made them accountable. Now I want to plug a fantastic book co-authored by Gary Chapman, who is a New York Times bestseller with the book Five Love Languages and by one of my close friends, Clarence Schuler. Their book, Choose Greatness, dives into the 11 critical choices every young man makes and how these young men can make the right choices so they can get on the path to greatness. I have seen in my time many NFL players mess up their careers, lives, and marriages because they lack guidance when they were younger. I wish I could have given them this book because after reading it, I have no doubt it would have helped them avoid their pains and given them a GPS path to greatness. You have an opportunity to help the teens in your life choose greatness. You can pick up a copy of Choose Greatness by Gary Chapman and Clarence Schuler at Amazon.com. One of the secrets to driving, driving a quarterback to success is to put him in the hot kitchen in practice so that when he gets in a game, he's never going to see anything tougher in a game. No, and, and that was our goal. I mean, that was, as, as a quarterback coach, my goal was to make it almost a relief for the young man that he was going to go play the game and not have to go to practice. It was going to be so hard and demanding at practice. And, and I think when you, when you get after him that way and when you coach that way, there's always a next play up mentality. You know, you just, you can't, if you can't do it at practice, then you won't, you know, you won't do it in the game either. But there's no dwelling on what just happened. We're moving forward, and we, and we need, you know, that one wasn't good. We're going to need a big play now, and you know, you just, you, you kind of got that toughened mentality uh, developed on the practice field and it carried over to the game. How do you help, and how do you coach a quarterback who might be number two on the roster, who isn't going to get a lot of reps with the ones? to put him in the best possible position so that when he gets in those critical situations in the games, he makes great decisions, great throws. He intuitively just just does what you want him to do. So how can you simulate that outside of live reps? Because not everybody, not everybody, you know, even when QB one's doing it, two and three are not doing it. When you put in two, one's not doing it. Right. So in addition to creating chaos and practice on the field, what else can you do as a coach to create that chaos? Well, I think number one, is, and I've been in a lot of quarterback rooms, some guys do this very well, some guys neglect it, but you've you got to realize you're coaching everybody in that room. You're not coaching the starter. You're coaching everybody in that room. And when you're watching film, it may be the starter on the practice tape doing that rep, but there's no reason why you can't be in the other two guys' lap about what's good about this, what's bad about this, what do you see in the coverage. So... I learned a long time ago, you're one play from the dude in the other chair having to be your quarterback. So uh, you better make sure everybody is attentive all the time in every meeting. And then likewise on a practice field, when one guy's repping, there's no going over the water. You're, you're standing there watching it from behind like a coach and, and reading it out and getting a visual rep. Not that that's as good as playing, but you know, I, I, there, there's an art to doing that. And I think some guys do it really well, but you better be coaching the whole room not just the guy that's playing. Well, one of the things that I've seen being an agent for you know more than 25 years is that if a young man believes in himself, then his teammates will start believing in him. As long as he's not a fraud. Right. You got to believe, but you also got to put the work behind it as well. So my question is, this is a chicken or an egg question. Do you think most players believe in, believe in themselves after their coaches believe in them? Or do you think the coaches believe in the players first because the player believes in himself? I think you want players that believe in themselves the second they walk into your program. Uh, you know, I, now they, they're not going to be all the way there physically, you know, say they're incoming freshman or a rookie in the NFL. But there's a lot to learn. They know it. and There's going to be some bumps in the road. But guys that believe in themselves first. And then as a coach, it's your job to enforce that, to rep it, to develop that success, even if it is a blitz period in the practice field where they're there's enough good things happening to where this guy says, hey, I, uh, this is going to translate out onto the game field. Last question, Coach. There's a young man out there that is playing high school football, and he has a dream of being an NFL quarterback. He hasn't even played in college yet. Maybe he doesn't even have an offer yet. What are the things that a young man can do? He might be 16 years old, or maybe a starting quarterback, a mid-level high school in whatever statement in the country. What are the things that he has to get in his toolbox Obviously, if he's not killing it at his high school, right, not going to get looked at by the colleges. So, right. 
right, right here and now, I guess what I'm wanting you to do is mentor those young men that have that dream that don't know what they need to be working on. Right. Well, number one, the, the, like it or not, you know, when, when I was growing up, you played three sports. And, and not to say you still can't do that, but being a quarterback nowadays is year-round training. I mean, if you're not throwing a football every week, somebody else is, and they're going to take your job. So obviously the preparation year-round, if your goal is to be the starting high school quarterback or or you are the starting high school quarterback and your goal is to get to Division One or play college football, it's going to take a year-round effort. You know, your weight training, your throwing, the things that you you have to do off the field, not just when your coach is around, but when you're on your own, develop your skill set to get to that level. Because like I said, if you don't, somebody else is, and they're going to take your job. I will say this, though. Everybody has a different path. And, and there's some five-star guys that are getting offered in 10th grade. And then there's guys like Aaron Rodgers that don't get offered and have to play junior college. Everybody's got a different path. And, and it's the key is to not be discouraged, believe in yourself. And, and at the end of the day, it's playing when you get a chance. And that's why, uh, you know, I do some quarterback training. And one of the beautiful stories was Kyle Slaughter a couple years ago. He, he did not start the first game of his senior year in college. He wasn't even the starter at his college in, up in northern Colorado. The starter gets hurt. He goes in and plays. And when he had a chance to play, he played well. So that piqued some interest from NFL people. And then when he had a chance to play in the preseason, he played well. And, and at the end of the day, he believed in himself and, and produced when the time was right. And he got there. So, uh, again, everybody's path's different. Just there's no substitute, though, for the, the hard work and the preparation and the, and the belief in yourself. Outstanding. There we have it, Coach Steve Fairchild, a longtime NFL and college football coach, offensive coordinator, head coach, has coached the likes of Kurt Warner and Phillip Rivers and Bledsoe and a bunch of other guys. I want to thank you for being on today. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pro Mindset. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Five stars, of course. You can follow us on our website, ProMindsetPodcast.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ProMindsetPodcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or house cleaning. Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.